Well, there is a, a blog that I check out sometimes called Humans of New York. If you've never seen Humans of New York, uh, I'll first tell you that there is some colorful language on there sometimes. It is kind of New York. But um, there's, it's an amazing... Um, it's an amazing blog that what it basically does is God goes around, he takes a picture of somebody, and then he asks them a question. And he writes a paragraph or two about their response about this question. And sometimes when, it, when I just feel like, you know, I, I want to think more about what, what are people just thinking and feeling, I go and I'll read that. And uh, this, this past week there was one in particular that, that caught my, my eye as I was studying through the book of, of Job. They don't give people's names, but it was a middle-aged man. And he was asked the question, what was the saddest day of his life? And this was his reply. He says, I think I was angriest when my father died. The saddest and the angriest. The saddest because he was gone. And I selfishly wanted him back. Angriest because it made me think about how we all have to die. And that made me angry. Angry at what? God. The Spirit. Whatever it is that brought us here. I do believe in something. I don't know what. But I don't think we're here because of some accidental chemical reaction. But life is like some toy or some piece of candy that God hands to the baby just to snatch it away. I mean, come on. Did you really have to make us suffer to achieve salvation? Did Eve have to eat the apple? Did Jesus have to suffer on a cross so that we could be forgiven for our sins? You could have just snapped your fingers and forgiven our sins. You're God. You could have cut out the whole middle part. But you chose to make us suffer. And that makes me angry. I think that interview captures how many people feel living in this fallen world. Caught constantly between anger and sadness with questions about why does the world work the way that it does. And I think all of us wrestle with questions about why God does things like He does. And I think there's nothing like like pain, to, to tempt us from moving, well, yeah, tempt us from, to, to move from, from having questions for God to actually questioning God. Who are you to treat us this way? To finding fault with Him and raising our fist in contention with Him. That's what it sounds like is behind the heart of, of that man. And I suspect some of us, certainly all of us at different times in our lives, and most certainly behind the character that we've been studying over the past seven weeks, Job. So I'm going to ask that you would join me back in the book of Job, chapter 38, as we continue our study of his wrestling with God in the midst of his afflictions. Job, chapter 38. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles provided for you there in in the pew rack, and we'll be on page 443, 443. It will help you to have a Bible open, as we're going to go kind of verse by verse, line by line, through God's Word here. As you turn there, I'm just going to catch us back up on the story, in case this is your first time with us. In the first two chapters of this book, we find that there's a man named Job who is a, a good man. He's not a perfect man, but God says that he is blameless and upright, that he fears God and he turns away from, from evil. And God gave permission to Satan to afflict Job. And Satan did that. And he brought great calamity upon Job and stripped him of all of his fame and his fortune. His family, ten children, died. Job's health was taken away. He had complete devastation. And Job's initial response to God was one of faith and of worship. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But after his initial response of worship, 
We said last week that things began to take a bit of a a different turn. Job begins to question. We see a lot of these questions come out in uh, basically the big part of the book, chapter 3 through 31, where we see three rounds of conversations that Job has with his friends. And in those conversations, Job's friends say, listen, Job, you must have some kind of secret sin in your life, and that's why all this is happening to you. And Job replies and says, whoa, 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 no, 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 I'm innocent before God, but God has for some reason decided to just make me his, his enemy. And then last week we saw this guy named Elihu. He, he came on the scene and he said, what up guys, listen, both of you are wrong. Job's friends, you need to know there's not some kind of secret sin that has brought all of this calamity upon Job. And Job, you need to know that though you didn't sin in a particular way to get you into this mess, in the midst of your suffering and your affliction, you have sinned. You have spoken things you should not have spoken. You have accused God of things you should not have accused Him of. You have, you have raised your fist at Him in a way that is indeed sinful. And as Elihu is speaking... Last week we didn't get into a lot of it, but chapters 36 and 37, if you, if you read back through that, you'll know that as Elihu is there speaking these truths to Job, kind of preparing the way for, for, for God's word to come, it says that this storm begins to roll in. Somewhere off in the distance, the clouds begin to form and the day begins to darken and the wind begins to blow and rain begins to fall and this storm moves in. And what we find out in chapter 38 that it's, it's in this storm, it's the very presence of God who is coming. Because there's been a whole lot of talking and a whole lot of speculating But God is arriving on the scene now here in chapter 38, and he is going to set the record straight. Job had requested a meeting with the Lord. He had wanted an appointment with the Almighty. Back in 13.3, he said, I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. Well, we, we don't all get it in this way, but... Job is about, he's about to get what he wanted. God is going to speak into Job's suffering. And oftentimes, we, we think that if God were going to speak something into our suffering, that it would be gentle words, soft words, and sometimes he does do that. But sometimes the most comforting thing that God can do in the midst of our suffering and our affliction is to put us in our place and for him to rightly take his. And that is the way that God is going to deal with, with Job this morning. And the way that this, this section is, is laid out is basically we have t- two speeches by God, each followed by a response by Job. So God's going to speak in chapter 38 uh, and 39, and Job is going to respond briefly. And then... God is going to speak again in chapter 40 through 41, and Job is going to respond again in chapter 42. And then next week, we're going to see how the story concludes. We're going to begin here in chapter 38 with God's first speech. We're going to see him declaring his, his sovereign wisdom in creation. God's sovereign wisdom in creation. Job chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. So out of that storm that had rolled in, God speaks. And he says, verse 2, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. So Job wanted to contend with God's wisdom about how he's running the universe, and God says, let's go. Let, let, let's do that. I'm not sure if you have a note there on dress for action like a man. It's, it's literally, gird up your loins. Put on your cup, Job, because it is game time. That's basically what he's saying. For 18 chapters, you 
You have been spouting off what you think is wisdom. You've questioned me. Well, now it is my turn to do some questioning. God is going to deal in a gracious way very severely here with with Job. God's going to take Job on a tour of the physical universe to see if Job can answer some basic questions for him. So, in chapter 38, he begins by saying, Look down, Job. Look down upon the earth. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it, the measuring line? Or, or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, those are angels, shouted for joy. God says, let's talk about the creation of the world. Where were you, Job, when all of that went down? Were you there to hear the angels sing at the the ribbon-cutting ceremony of the universe? I, I don't remember you being there, Job, but I was there. Look down, Job, upon the sea, verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb, when I made clouds its garments and the thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said thus far you shall come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed he says look down upon the sea job let's talk about the creation of the sea for a moment where were you when i did that were you the one who told the oceans halt waves stop that's as far as you go I don't think so, Job. Beaches boast of my sovereign hand, Job, not yours. Look down, Job, upon the horizon and the sun that comes up from it. Verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? What a great question. Have you commanded the morning, Job, since your, since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Let's talk about the sunrise Job, are you the one who orchestrates the dawning of each new day? Are you the one who who paints those, those masterpieces in the morning? It's not you, Job. You don't you don't do that. No. The sunrise, the sunrise is a call to humility, Job, to know that I am the one who does all of that. By the way, this is this has been a wonderful meditation for me over the past couple of weeks that every time I see the sun come up to remember God saying, did you do that? No, you didn't. I did that. It's another day of my sovereign display of faithful power. And let that comfort us. Because with each dawning day is a new day of mercy. Hear this from Lamentations 3. Jeremiah says, I remember my affliction and this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Hope flows from humility. And Job is is being shown here that see the sunrise? You didn't do that. I did that. Take your place, Job. Look down upon the depths of the earth and the sea and the oceans. Verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. He says, Job, let's let's talk about the ocean, that underwater world that you don't know anything about. There was was no Jacques Cousteau in those days. He didn't know about what was under there. Have have you been there, Job? Have you been 36,000 feet down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench? Have you seen the lanternfish that's down there, Job? No, you haven't. Psalm 104 says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. 
I remember as a, as a child growing up, I wanted to be an oceanographer because I like sharks and I wanted to study that. And I would just remember being captivated as a child by seeing what was under the water. There's a whole nother world under there of fish and eels and coral and shells and all this weird stuff. It's just amazing. There's a whole nother world under there that people didn't know about forever. God says, Job, do you know about all that? You don't know about all that. I know about all that. I made it. I made it all. Look down upon the ocean. Now let's look up, Job. Look up. Let's, let's look up to the light and the darkness there in verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. That's called sarcasm. And, and God's laying it on him right here. Job, you, you know where light and darkness dwell, right? I mean, you, you were there when, when all that began. Yeah. No, you weren't. But I was, Job. So, so, so look up, Job. Look, look up to, to the weather. Verse 22 of chapter 38. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Verse 25, who has, a cleft, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is or the desert in which there is no man to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout? with grass. Job, do you, do you know where the snow is kept? Do, do you know where the hailstones are stored? H- how about the rain that falls where nobody lives? Do you know about that, Job? Did you direct those raindrops? Did you turn water into ice? You don't do that, Job, but I do. Look up, Job. Look, look at the stars. Look at the, the constellations. Verse 31. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or lose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? How about this one, Job? Did you arrange the stars? Did you align them in such a way that constellations were formed? Did you make all those little suns burn so far away? Are you the one who did all of that? No, you didn't, Job. It was me. I did that. Have you, have you ever th- given thought to our universe? Just pondered it? It's an incredible thing that shows the vastness of God. We live on planet Earth, which is part of our solar system, which includes our sun and everything that orbits around it. But our sun is just one of some estimated 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And the Milky Way galaxy is one of just what some scientists will project somewhere between 100 billion and 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe. And each of those galaxies is filled with stars. And you know what? Psalm 147 says this, He determines the numbers of the stars and he calls them each by name. You do that? Nope. He says, I do that. I made them, I name them. And every time they shine forth light or one fizzles out, it's all for my glory. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Shows off my handiwork. I did that, Job. Does it blow your mind that there's so much out there? And that yet on this little planet, I put you and I care for you. That's for some reason, while you're down here, you're complaining about the way that I'm running all of this. Look up, Job. Look up to the stars. And look up, Job. Look up to to the storms. Verse 34 of chapter 38. Can you lift your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you make it rain? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. Can you whistle, Job, and make lightning come and stand at attention and then drop right where you want it to? I don't think so. I can do that, though, Job. 
Verse 37. Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can, I love this, tilt the water skins of the heavens? Can you make raindrops hang on to little dust molecules and hover in the air with billions of pounds of, of weight up there? And can you move it across the sky? And then whenever you say, now, they drop down and dump. Can you do that, Job? No, you can't. But that's what I do all day long. I do that, Job. I do that. I am the one. So whether we look at the ocean or the sunrise or lightning or snow or the the stars in the sky, God is making it clear that he is the omniscient one, the all-knowing one, and the omnipotent one, the all-powerful one. And we are absolutely ignorant of how it all works. Job is surrounded above and below by mysteries of God's wisdom and power and glory. And as our, you know, our scientific advances increase, all it ought to produce in us is a newer and deeper awe of Him. Because we become more and more aware of all the things that we don't know. All the things we hadn't seen before. Whether we look through a telescope or a microscope, we behold a world with amazing order and design and splendor that is orchestrated and run by the God of the universe. Now he carries on. Look around, Job. So you look down, you've looked up. Now, Now look around. Let's talk about some animals. I'm about to go animal planet on them right here, all right? Verse 39 of chapter 38. Look at the, the animals who I feed. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? When they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Job, did you, did you teach the lion to hunt? Or, or did, you, did you make those baby birds cry out to me for breakfast? Did you send that worm that mama bird scooped up? Did you bring that bug across her path at just the right time? I do that, Job, every time. Psalm 147, 9 says, He, meaning God, gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens the cry. God does that. Look around, Job. Look who oversees the, uh, the delivery cycle of, of animals. Chapter 39, 1. Do you know, Job, where the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the mouths that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? Do you know the delivery schedule of mountain goats, Job? I, I give conception and I oversee delivery. Do you know all that happens with the animals on the mountains, Job? Do you know all that? I do. Look around, Job, at the wild and untamed animals. Verse 5. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? Verse 9. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the fur with ropes or will the harrow of the valleys after you? Who, who controls the uncontrollable animals, Job? Can you just walk up to a wild ox in the field and lead it wherever you want? Are you the, are you the ox whisperer, Job? Can you do that? I do that, Job. They all do what I tell them to do. Which is a really interesting side note. The only things in all of creation that are disobedient in the Bible are people. Every time you see an animal told to do something, it does it. Get on the ark, halt right there while this guy's getting ready to go do a false prophecy. Whatever it is, God always, the animals always listen. Fish, go swallow Jonah. Like this is, it's it's a thick irony. Do you control the animals, Job? No, you don't. I do. What about weird animals, Job? You seen some weird ones? Did you do that? Let me tell you about an ostrich. Verse 13, chapter 39. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but they are the pinions and plumage of love. For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. 
She deals cruelly with her young, as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear. Because, here you go, God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. You ever just watched one of those, those animal, you know, planet things? And you're like, why is the why does a bird do that dumb thing? Or if you lived in Texas, why is the armadillo always not, why is he always walking across the road? There are armadillos everywhere on roads in Texas. They're just the dumbest critters everywhere. And he's like, why is that? God says, I made them dumb. What do you think about that? I did that. Why? I don't know. Well, he knows. I don't know. He knows. God says, I made them dumb for a reason, Job. You get up and you see that ostrich run away from his eggs and think, well, well, get back there, ostrich. He goes, no, no, no. I taught her to forget about it. Why? Don't worry about it. Because I'm God. And I make things weird sometimes. I mean, have you ever, if you don't have that BBC Planet Earth video, I would encourage you to at least borrow it from me or some, get it. It's really good. I mean, like, you go on this tour of the world and you see polar bears like up in the snow, and they hibernate, and I mean, just the way it works, and then you go down into the, the, the jungles, and you see these flowers that eat bugs and whatnot, and then like you've got these salmon that swim like up a thousand miles up river to get to this place where they're going to spawn and then die and turn into bear food, and like you just watch it, and the whole thing just cries out, glory. Now they miss it in the video because they don't know that God's doing it all, but but we know and we can watch that. I love watching that with the kids and being like, isn't that crazy amazing? Jellyfish, like what's a jellyfish? Be amazed by those things. God says creation is filled with amazing things to make your mind go, wow, God is glorious. He orchestrates, he orchestrates it all. What about what about strong animals, Job? Verse 19. Do you give the horse his might? Do you cloak his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? Are you the one, Job, who makes horses strong? I do that. Or how about birds, Job? Look around at the birds. Verse 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Was it you, Job, that taught those birds how to use the wings that I gave them? Was it you, Job, that gave them their hunting skills? These first two chapters, question after question after question, 40 rhetorical questions God lays before Job in these chapters. 40 of them. And why do you think he uses questions? I mean, we see Jesus doing the same thing. It's to make Job engage, to start processing things, and, and to try to answer them for himself, and to just see that there's, there, is, there is no other answer other than, than God is God, and I am not. And then chapter 40, he says, you've looked up, you've looked down, you've looked around, now look at me, Job. Chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Job, you're a fault finder. Job had previously tried to find fault with the way that God was running the world, and he's made it known. He says here, contending with the Almighty, arguing with God. That is what happens when somebody calls God into question. They're contending with him. A quote here from Spanish monarch Alfonso of Castile. He lived in 1221. He did this contending with God in a very explicit way. He said this. He said, had I been present at the creation, I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. That is explicit contending that some do. Job hasn't been quite that bold, but he has implied throughout this book, ever since beginning in chapter 3, that he knows better than God about his suffering. That things should not be going like this. God has treated me wrongly. 
Job had not sinned to get himself into this suffering, but in the midst of his suffering, he had sinned. And in these chapters, the Lord wants Job to know, I created it all. I sustain it all. I see it all. I know it all. I rule over all of it. And that no man, no matter how wise or how religious or how learned or how popular upon the earth, has the right to contend with me, the God of heaven. Job is here going to be softened. It's as if God is saying to Job, if you know so little about the physical world that you can see and smell and taste and touch and hear and feel, how much less do you know about the spiritual world, Job? What do you know about your suffering that I don't know? Can, can you see how I intend to sovereignly use every teardrop that has fallen on your cheek? Can, can you see, Job, how I intend to use every boil on your back? Can you see, Job, how I intend to use every blister that you gained when you buried your ten children? Can you see the purpose that I have, Job? Do you know my plan? God's omniscience here is exposing Job's ignorance. Man cannot teach his maker. God says, it is not I who must give an account to you, but you who must give an account to me. And it's here that we hear Job's first response to God. Chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job had answered his friends with protests because he saw himself as wiser than they. But God has silenced him. He calls himself here small account, light, insignificant. Job has seen himself compared to the weighty glory of God. And he says, I have no right to challenge, to condemn, or to complain against you. Your ways are above my ways. Your thoughts are above my thoughts. Proverbs 30 verse 2 says, If you have been foolish, exalting yourself... Put your hand on your mouth. Job put his hand on his mouth here. And he is apparently learning the fundamental lesson of life. And that is to learn the difference between our place and God's place. That is the foundational lesson of all life. To know our place compared to God's place and to embrace it. Now, you might think that the, the book would, would end here, and I, I bet Job probably thought that that was, that was the, the end. You know, God has proved wise. Job has listened. He is silent. But God is not done with Job. Because God doesn't just want Job to stop complaining. God wants Job to stop contending and to repent. And this, by the way, I think is a very important thing for us to notice because there are times in the midst of trial that we will think that we have learned everything that we need to learn. You're, you ever done that before? You're like, okay, God, I got the lesson. Thank you. We, th we think the Lord has, has beat the horse sufficiently dead. But God knows when enough is enough. He the great physician, he sees the disease that we didn't even know was there. And he knows the best remedy for it. He is the great physician of our souls and he knows how deep the disease is and when more surgery is required upon our soul. So do not grow weary in the midst of your trials and your afflictions when you feel like, okay, I've got it. Oh, why is there more? Because God says there's more needed. And this brings us to our, our second speech. 
So speech one, God made and rules the universe. Job sees that God is wise and that he needs to be quiet, and he is silenced. Well, here in the second speech, God is going to show that he has sovereign power over evil. He's going to begin here in chapter 40, verses 6 down through 14, by asking Job, can you judge the world better than I can? So, so you think you can run the world better, but can you, can you judge the world better than I can? Look at verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you ever put me in the wrong? Will you contend me, or I'm sorry, will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Are you going to make me out to look wrong so that you look right, Job? And this is, by the way, the whole point that Elihu was making last week. In chapter 32-2, this is the accusation that Elihu brought against Job. That Job was selling God out for his own reputation. That he was justifying himself at God's expense. And God says, you going to do that to me? Well, verse 9. Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Meaning, do, do you have power like I have? Can your arm save people like mine can? Is your arm able to punish evil like mine can? Does your voice boom with authority like mine does? Can you call 10,000 angels to your service, Job? No. Verse 10. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then, if you can do all that, Job, if you can, if you can execute justice perfectly, then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. See, this whole time Job has been saying, I can do better. God, he's been implying that by saying, God, you're not treating me right. You're treating me as your enemy. I haven't done anything to to deserve this. And God says, hold on, wait. You think that you can take my hand off the plow of history and you can steer it better in regards to justice? Well, then why don't you get dressed like a king and why don't you take the throne and why don't you bring down all evil? And when you can do that, then we will all say, yes, Job, you can save yourself and that you're right and I'm wrong. But you can't do that, Job, because you're not a better judge than me. I know what you don't know and I see what you don't see, Job. I am the righteous and glorious judge of the universe. And there is great comfort there in verse 14. Realizing that we cannot save ourselves, that we are not wise enough or strong enough, but that God alone is our hope, and that he has provided that salvation ultimately in Christ. I'll speak more of him in a moment. But what, what God does now in the rest of chapter 40 and 41 is, at first glance, very odd. Because what he's going to do here is he's going to spend 44 verses describing a beast of the earth called Behemoth and a beast of the sea called Leviathan. And there's something about what God is going to say about these two beasts that is going to move Job to repent in a way that the first, uh, that the first speech did not. There's something here in these two beasts that he's going to talk about that that brings Job to his end and he says, yes, I repent. I see you now in a way I never saw you before. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these two and then we're going to to kind of come back and and see what it is that, that humbles Job so much. First, he says there in verse 15, behold behemoth. Behold behemoth. This is verses 15 down through 24 of chapter chapter 40. Behold behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. 
His limbs are like bars of iron. Verse 19, important verse. They're all important, but this one particularly, verse 19. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. And he goes on to talk about his his eating habits. Now, behemoth here, whatever it was, was a beast that, that nobody wanted to tangle with. He's big, he's strong, and he's unfazed by anything that is going to come against him. If you look down at verse 20, it says, Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident through Jordan, or though Jordan rushes against his mouth. This thing is so strong that it can walk through the Jordan River at high tide all the way up to its neck and not even worry about getting swept away. This thing is a beast. It's like a bus walking through a raging river. But what we need to know about this behemoth thing is there in verse 19. He is the first of the works of God, meaning preeminent. It doesn't mean he's the first thing God made. It means he's preeminent. When you look on the ground, it's this thing that you see. Let him who made him bring near his sword. God, who made this beast, he is alone able to approach it with a sword. So however powerful this behemoth thing is, his maker has power over him to subdue him, to keep him in his place, and ultimately to kill it. Okay? File that away for just a moment. Now, he's going to talk about Leviathan. Leviathan. This is chapter 41, the whole whole chapter. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We're going to read a few verses here. Look at verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? So this, the first one was a beast of the earth. This one's a beast of the sea. Verse 2, can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Verse 5, will you play with him as with a bird or will you put him on a leash for your girls? You're going to bring him home as a pet, Job? Verse 7, can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You won't do it again. You won't tangle with that guy. Verse 9. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Look down at verse 14. Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. Verse 22. In his neck abides strength and terror. Terror dances before him. Verse 25. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail. Nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts its iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee, for him sling sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. Leviathan, whatever it was, it was a beast of the sea that nobody could control. It was too dangerous, too strong, too Fierce. Look down at verse 33. On the earth there is not uh, on earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all sons of pride. The world is filled with proud and arrogant people, but he is the proudest and the most arrogant and the strongest and the ruler of them all. So what we need to know here is that God says, no matter how scary it is to stand before Leviathan, you've got to know there's nothing more scary than standing before me. Look back at verse 10. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole earth is mine. He says, that Leviathan thing, does that freak you out, Job? It freaks everybody out. But it's nothing compared to standing before me. Now, what 
are these creatures? And why in the world does God bring them in here? And why does it produce what it produces in Job? Well, behemoth, this great beast of the earth, and Leviathan, the great beast of the sea. Um, So I think that they were some kind of actual creature. I don't know what they were. I think they were some kind of actual creature that, that Job would have been able to potentially see. I think that's, I think that's, I think that's possible, okay? Um, some people think it's a hippo. Some people think it's an alligator. Some think there's some kind of extinct dinosaurs. Not sure. And in one sense, it, it really doesn't matter. And the reason is because Job and others in his day wouldn't just have thought about those animals when they, they heard God mention them. They would have thought about something else, something greater that they represented in, in their culture. This is one of the things we need to remember. We're dealing here with wisdom literature. And, and oftentimes in wisdom literature and prophetic literature, God will use uh, pictures that are actual things that have a greater meaning, a bigger representation behind them. And that is what I think is going on here. Because in the ancient Near Eastern mythology, Behemoth and Leviathan both represented divine powers. Behemoth symbolized Mot, who was the Canaanite god of death. The ever-hungry beast that devours all the living. Like, like the grim reaper on steroids is this thing. And Leviathan was known in mythology as this seven-headed sea dragon who is the enemy of all created order. He was known as the chaos monster, the personification of, of evil and calamity and disorder. He was the most greatly feared monster that there was, as it were. And what we see happen in the scriptures here in Job, in Psalm 74... And in Isaiah 21, we see God leading biblical authors to use imagery of Leviathan and the behemoth to personify something greater. Particularly of, of, I'm sorry, behemoth isn't in those other places. Behemoth is only here. But Leviathan is in those other places. To personify evil that describes those who would seek to do God's people harm. So for instance... In Psalm 74, Asaph says that during the Exodus, when God led Egypt, or Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, it says that God crushed the head of Leviathan. Pharaoh and his armies are likened to this beast. They're like Leviathan because of what Leviathan represents. Evil. And the one behind evil. Satan himself. You see, in in the book of Revelation, we find imagery of dragons and serpents and sea monsters that refer to Satan himself. So listen to this from Revelation 12. Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then in chapter 20, verse 2. He, meaning God, sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Satan is behind the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and he is behind the evil and the terror and the disorder that that the world had no idea where it came from, so they make up this beast, Leviathan, and they say, that's what it is. And God uses that imagery that all of the culture would have been very familiar with. And he says, I, I'm bigger and badder than Leviathan. So why do these descriptions of behemoth and Leviathan help Job in the midst of his suffering? Because God is telling Job that death, which behemoth represents, and evil, which Leviathan represents, that have been taunting you and torturing you, Job. I want you to know, Job, that they are not haphazardly roaming about my universe. They 
are under my control. Leviathan may not be a pet on a leash for your child, but Satan is on my leash. He takes no step that I do not first allow him to take. And we saw that in the first two chapters of Job, right? Everybody wonders, hey, where'd Satan go? Because in the first two chapters, we see him. He's there. He's the antagonist. He's coming after God's glory and after Job. And God says, yes, Satan, you can afflict him, but you can only go this far. And he's, he's on a leash. God says, you think you can't leash Leviathan? I leash him. He's my, he's my dog. Death and Satan are haunting this man, Job, just like they haunt all of us. No one in this, in human history, escapes their attacks. They are, as God described to Job, powerful and ruthless and unflinching in their posture against God's people. But they, death and Satan, are ultimately under God's control. And they are also destined for destruction by the hand of God. Do you remember what behemoth, remember what it said about behemoth back in verse 19? Look back at chapter 40, verse 19. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who has made him bring near his sword. God has a sword for behemoth. God has a sword for death. And what does God say about Leviathan? Well, listen to this from Isaiah 27. On that day, the great day of judgment. The Lord with his cruel and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, and he will kill the dragon that is in the sea. God has a sword for Leviathan. God has a sword for evil. God has a sword for Satan who is behind all of this evil that is becoming upon Job. God this is, when I saw this, it was just yesterday that I, I, I was understanding what God was doing here with these two beasts. It is amazing comfort here for Job. Job, you think that the grave that is holding your children and that you've been crying out for me to put you in, you think that that's strong. And Job, all of this evil and this affliction that has come upon you, you think it's strong, and it is strong. And it's been torturing my people since the Garden of Eden. But what you've got to know, Job, is that death and evil do not rule my universe. Just like you don't rule the universe, they don't rule the universe. I rule the universe. This is my house. I run it. I am in control. I have a sword that I will put them to death. They may stand over you and mock for a moment, but it will not be everlasting. Because I will intervene. This brings Job to repentance. Job, Job sees it. Chapter 42, he said, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I, I know that you can do all things, and then no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that, and then he quotes God, Who is this that hides counsel with knowledge? And Job replies, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And he quotes God, here and I will speak, I will question you, you make it known to me. And then verses 5 and 6. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, next week, we're going to spend a bunch of time all in chapter 42 and, and pick this apart. But what, what brings Job to peace, what brings Job to comfort, is knowing that death and evil, they do not rule. They don't rule. We've, we've got to know that in this world, that, that suffering and affliction, it does not win. It does not have the last laugh. It is not more powerful than the sword that the Almighty hand. But, but, but then how does God deal with those things? Well, he has dealt with death and with evil in the sending of his son, Jesus. In Isaiah 27, it says, On that day the Lord, with his cruel and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan the serpent. 
What day is he referring to? Well, he's referring to a couple days. First, he's referring to a day that was some 2,000 years ago when God's Son left the glories of heaven, left the angels singing his praises, left the honor that it was to be the Son of God, and he set his honor aside. And the Son of God came as a man, and he was born of a virgin, and he walked upon our earth. And he cried like we cry. And he was spit at like we're spit at. And he was persecuted like we were persecuted. And he went to a cross. And there on the cross, he died. And the reason he died on that cross was to take, was to take the judgment that you and I deserved. That there on that cross, for all of the evil that we have done, It all fell upon him. That he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. That Christ there took the wrath and the judgment. That the sword fell upon him so that it would not fall upon those who would trust in him. Listen to what the scriptures say Jesus did on that day when he fell under the sword of God's wrath. Colossians 2. God has made those who trust in Christ alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt and setting it aside, nailing it to the cross. And listen to this, what happened on the cross. He, meaning Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Those rulers and authorities are not just kings and princes. They are the prince of darkness, Satan himself. When Jesus was upon the cross and he was pierced, there the sword of God's wrath that fell upon him was in turn crushing Satan and killing him and putting evil ultimately to death. And then the behemoth, well, three days after he died, he defeated behemoth. He rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That means Christians who have died in faith. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. That is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came, and by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he has defeated Satan, and he has defeated the grave. He has put down behemoth, and he has put down Leviathan. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And there is very much an already not yet experience that Christians have in this. Now, let me just explain what I mean when I say Christians. So, if you're here this morning and, you, and you, don't, you don't follow Christ, you wouldn't say, listen, I believe in Him as my Lord and Savior. What it means to be a Christian is that we, we hear all of these truths about evil and about God's justice and God's glory, and we see that, that we, by God's grace, we recognize that we've turned away from God and that we've sinned against Him and that we, in doing that, align ourselves with the evil that God will judge. But God in his mercy has given a way of escape that by turning from your sin and trusting in that Jesus, you can be forgiven, be born again. You'll be born again, made new, and given new life and brought into a relationship with him to walk now, not free from all affliction, but free from the fear of it, trusting that God is God and we can trust him no matter what. There is a day coming soon when he will return. Revelation 19.15 says, Jesus will return, and you know what he has in his mouth? A sharp sword. Because he is going to finish the work once and for all. And Satan and sin and death will be no more. They will be cast into the lake of fire, and all those who have not turned from their sins and trusted in Christ will join. And then God's people would be with the King of Kings in glory with him forevermore so this morning if you find yourself under great affliction if you find yourself in great suffering 
the greatest truth that we need to know is that God is God. And that God indeed rules the universe. And that there is nothing that happens in this life that is apart from His perfect and sovereign hand. And that we can trust Him. And we know we can trust Him because of the grace that He has shown us in Christ. So are you struggling this morning? Are you suffering this morning? Are your afflictions weighty? Draw near to the throne of the Almighty One who puts down death and puts down evil and says, come unto me through Christ the Lord. Let us draw near that we may receive grace in a time of need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great grace that you have shown us in Christ, that in him that you have put down death and you have put down Satan. You have defeated them with the sword of your righteousness. Oh, Father, we pray that you might give us hearts to believe. Oh, God, help us not to contend with you. Lord, take our questions and Lord, help us to bring them to you in humility. Let them not turn into a cancer which questions you. Oh, God, give us hearts that are humble. God, make us to not just hear about you with the ear, but to see you with the eye. Remove all the things that we hold to in all of our own wisdom, that we may may behold Christ in all his glory. Father, we pray that you would make us a people who are brought low because you are exalted on high in our hearts. Oh, Father, work this for your glory and our good. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.